Good morning, Frontline. <clears throat> Good to be here. Uh, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I uh, would love to get a chance to do that. Um, can I just point out the obvious that Paul in 1 Corinthians has a whole lot of fastballs? Now, I've never been a baseball pitcher. Um, I tried it in Little League. There's a reason that I'm not in the, the majors right now. Um, but I think those guys can, can throw a lot of heat, and then they got to throw some curves to kind of let that arm rest a little bit in between innings. Paul doesn't let up, does he? And so you're like, oh, my goodness, why did I show up today? I, I think there's a beautiful, beautiful invitation from the Lord here. But this, this takes some work. So as we've been walking through this book of 1 Corinthians, I want us to remind us that all these pieces are connected, that, that all the different things that Paul lines up are connected. And so this week connects to last week, and that connected to the week before. And, and, and what we talk about today is connected to next week. And so uh, I, I want to say there's a really strong tie between what we're talking about this week and what we talked about what Chad talked about last week. If you weren't here, I want to I ask you to go listen to that sermon audio, ask the Lord what he's doing in this section, because these two things are tightly uh, bound up. If you're here and you're not a Christian, can I just say thank you for being here? I, I'm re it's really an our honor that you would be here. Um, I also know that there's some things here that you're like, man, that I don't know if any of that makes sense. This is, a, this is a space, this church is a space in which there are no question off limits. There's no questions that's going to get you pushed out the door quietly. We'll step into anything. So whatever questions you have, whatever concerns you have, whatever thing you're like, I don't understand what to do with this. Why do Christians believe this? What is Paul saying? We would love to talk to you. We'll grab lunch, we'll grab coffee, grab time afterwards. But I want to offer that invitation. Even, even though some of this sounds odd, maybe, don't run away from it. Lean into it. I want to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me because we got work. We got work to do. So God, would you, would you move in us? Father, we believe that these are your words for your church, and we believe that, the, that, that you, by your spirit, you spoke to the church at Corinth through Paul's letter, and we're asking that you would speak to our hearts in the same way. For us to understand what you're saying to us. And I ask for particular grace in moments that may make us squirm. Would you give us grace to stand in a moment, and hear what you say to us, knowing that you love us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, I was listening to a podcast uh, uh, interview between uh, Ezra Klein and Dan Savage. I'm not going to go into the particulars of it. I'm not even going to tell you to go recommend to listen to it as a bit of a train wreck. But what they're, uh, Savage is a, a sex columnist and a relationship columnist, and they're talking about how we ought to view relationships and fulfillment and joy and pleasure and all these kinds of things. And it was a train wreck. But what was fascinating was this. Apart from a gospel understanding of what relationships are for, every conversation devolves into nothing mere than pleasure-seeking and self-centeredness. And that's what happened in this conversation. It, it began to, we evaluate decisions we make relationally simply on how it makes me feel. That, 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 that the idea of everything around me terminates on me. And I came out of listening to this podcast just feeling so sad. So sad that that's all they had to offer. Cheap trinkets. You see, Paul is right now in the book of Corinthians looking at how the gospel, the, the tr profound truth of who God is, speaks into every relational sphere that we have. 
So we've seen over the last couple of months him talking about marriage and sex and singleness. He's spoken into divorce, and, and, and now he's speaking to singles uh, again with a different, with a different angle. But, but I want to say this. Paul's not trying to be repressive or backwards. He's trying to give us the blueprints of how God has made us, wired us, and what he's called us to for our joy. Paul is not here to repress, but to give. See, this text is directed towards questions around singleness, but it's also about so much more because Paul doesn't just answer these questions they have. He gives the church of Corinth a new way of seeing the world, a new way of seeing the kingdom, and a new way of seeing themselves. So those are the three. The, I want us to explore three questions this morning. And that, those questions in sequence are, what is Paul saying? Second, why is Paul saying it? And third, what do we do with it? First question, what is Paul saying? We have to stop and ask, what is happening in this passage? In the, in the months that we've been in 1 Corinthians, we've talked about all kinds of topics. You see, just a reminder, and if you haven't been here before, I want you to remind you of the context of 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that Paul, an apostle of the church, is writing in a correspondence with the church. There are messengers going back and forth. Paul planted this church, and they're asking them advice. They're saying, hey, we have a concern and an issue. And, and there's no email, so they're sending people back and forth asking questions. And Paul's responding to those questions. This is at least the second letter Paul's written to them. Probably there have been many others. But these aren't, I, I say that because these are not abstract questions. Paul's not like this philosopher on a mountain that's just like, I wonder what curious questions people down there might have. He's actually engaging with real people in real circumstances with real questions. We've talked so far in 1 Corinthians about, he, he's, he's led us through questions of unity and division, of wisdom and folly, of lawsuits, sexual immorality, church discipline. And now in this section of marriage and singleness, we see him begin to focus in on this particular text about, around two, two, uh, two particular people group, uh, those that are betrothed. It, it would be a similar to engaged, but it's different. But singles that are betrothed, and those that are singled because they've been widowed. Let's look at the relevant passages here, and let's see what Paul says to us. Starting in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed marry, woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Listen to Paul's heart here. And I would spare you that. Skip on to verse 36. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving uh, properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and if it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. There is, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but under his desire, or, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Listen to this. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. So he's not, he's not blasting marriage. He's not saying those, those of you that are married are sellouts, but listen very carefully to what he says next. 
And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Verse 39, if a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So what is Paul saying here? It doesn't take a lot of, it doesn't take a nuclear physicist to figure out that he's saying this. Are you single? Stay single. That was easy. Let's go home. And yet, as I say that, I also want to say right after that, like, hey, cue the eye roll. Parents in the room, you've told your kids something, and they're like, yeah, dad. Cue the eye roll. And how often, listen to me, how often have we done that to Paul already in 1 Corinthians, and how many of us wanted to do it right there? Yeah, yeah, Paul. Right. What are you talking about, Paul? Are you just trying to justify the fact that you can't find a wife? It sounds flat-footed. Don't you value marriage, Paul? Don't you realize that, that without marriage, we don't have families, and without families, we don't have the continuation of, of, of Christian households? Paul gives us two reasons. He says to the singles, stay single, and he says this. The first reason is because it will lead to distraction in a divided heart. It will divide you between the things that you care for in your home and the things that you care for in the world. And second, there are particular difficulties and particular anxieties bound up with marriage. Because I want to spare you that. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's coming to us like a spiritual dad. He's coming to us as as a spiritual dad. Verse 25, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. What he means is this. I don't have a particular quote from Jesus on this exact question you write to me, but there is a logic in the gospel that applies to this question, and I want to apply it to you. He's taking the principle that Jesus has given us all over his teaching and applies it to this particular question. He says it's good for a person to remain as he is. This is why I want you to go back and listen to, to, to Chad's sermon from last week. Because what Chad led us into was this passage in which Paul is saying, hey, where you find yourself, don't, don't think that somehow you're going to find fulfillment by running from this place to that place, as if, as if somehow you can escape, uh, escape into happiness. But God has called you for this time to be in this place. Don't go roaming simply to find happiness. But while Paul says the shocking thing, singles stay single, he's not doing it to diminish marriage. Listen to me very carefully. He's simply elevating singleness. In this cultural moment, much like the church context in which I grew up in, marriage was just assumed. It was just assumed. You you were supposed to get married. These betrothals might have been months long, but in many cases these are years long that parents had had connected. Hey, hey, your daughter, my son, we're going to connect them in 15 years they're going to get married and, and they're this, in this contractual relationship that's going to lead to marriage and there's just an assumption, well, yeah, you get married. And what Paul is saying is, hey, let's not be so blinded 
and look and look up and realize there are other things going on in the world, other things that ought to be considered. And what we've ended up doing is devaluing a gift that God calls valuable, so valuable he gave that to his only son, Jesus. Singleness is a high, high calling. Singleness is a high, high calling. But Paul doesn't just give them commands. He, he doesn't just answer their questions and kind of just pass on from there. He actually explains to them the logic and connects what he's saying to deep and transcendent realities. In other words, what Paul does is he doesn't just address the question they're asking. He addresses the question behind the question. Which leads to, I think, the second question we need to ask. Why is Paul saying what he's saying? Why is he saying what he's saying? You see, Paul isn't doing a, a quick hit and run here. He's not coming in, giving a command, and then bouncing really quick before you can ask any questions. He shows us his math. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's trying to get the Corinthians to see the world differently than they see it. He's trying to give them a window into seeing reality as it truly is, not as they have myopically or blindly begun to experience it as. And there are three things that I think Paul uh, tells us here that I want us to see in this text. And the first is this, that Paul is arguing to the church at Corinth that there is something much bigger happening in the world than they currently see. There's something much bigger in the, happening in the world than what they currently see. Look at verse 26. Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress. Did you, did you notice that the first couple times we read this? In, in, in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Skip to verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Very, very interesting phrasing there. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those that rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Listen very carefully, for the present form of this world is passing away. You see, Paul shows us his math. He shows them that there's something going on in the world that they have been blind to. This idea of present distress. Uh, commentators will talk about what this might have meant particularly. Uh, and and there's, there's historical evidence that there was famine and things happening in this part of the world at this particular moment in which there are particular challenges that Paul's addressing. We also know that he writes this letter 15 years before the fall of Jerusalem. Now, Paul may or may not have known exactly when that was going to happen. We don't know if the Holy Spirit had given him awareness, but we know that Corinth didn't know what was coming. But we recognize, looking back, that there were hap things happening in the world that were monumental, and the people of Corinth were just oblivious. They're, they're, they're unaware of the deep things happening around them because it's just Tuesday. And Paul's trying to help them see that, no, there's present distress. And, and, and like, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I think I feel present distress. In other words, there are always contexts which we find ourselves that have pressures that we often are trying to ignore. And Paul's saying, don't ignore it. Don't ignore the things going on around you. 
Verse 29, he says that the, the time has grown very short. You see, Paul here, and commentators have shown this, what he's not saying, he, he often gets interpreted here as, as thinking that Jesus is going to come back like in three months or maybe in a year and a year and three months. And he's like, hey, there's no reason to go get married. Jesus is going to come back before you really even get back from your honeymoon. So like, like just chill out a little bit. That's not what Paul's saying. If you look at his language in this letter and other letters, what Paul begins, what Paul is trying to argue for and help us to understand is that this time on earth will fade and there's eternity coming and Jesus' return is imminent. Now, what he means by imminent is you and I don't know when it is, but we live as if it's tomorrow. In other words, our life, our experience in this world should be lived with the view that not Jesus' return is somewhere way out there, but that it's right around the corner. And we live lives with that kind of attentiveness. And third, verse 31, he says that the present form of this world is passing away. He wants them to realize that this world isn't going to last like this. Because we put so much investment in it. You see, Paul wants to give them a vision, an idea that the world in which they are is not just some blue sphere spinning through space in which we chase pleasures and trivialities. It's a world whose time is short. It's a world that's fading away. It's a world full of distress. But recreation is coming. Eternal hope is on offer. And that the eternal things bleed back into the present in beautiful and powerful ways. And we need to be aware of these things. As I was thinking about what Paul's doing here, I was thinking back to uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And if you haven't read it, um, it it's, a, it's a fascinating, haunting look at a, at a world in the future in which humanity becomes a a tool by the powerful to be wielded. And, and the way in which the powerful uh, control the people is through this thing called soma. It's a drug. It's this drug that they give to the world that numbs them out to reality and they don't understand what's happening. And so the only thing they see is the immediate. They've lost foresight. They've lost an understanding of what's coming and they've lost an understanding of the world around them and they've, under, they've misunderstood the fact that there are powers in the world that have taken their freedom only to give them a cheap substitute. Does that not sound like American culture to you? Numbed out on Netflix cues. They were euphoric yet unaware. Euphoric, yet unaware. And Paul wants them to see that something bigger is happening in the world around them. The second thing I think Paul wants them to see is that there's something much bigger happening through the kingdom of God than they realize. There's something much bigger happening through the kingdom of God than they realize. Look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I, I say this for, listen, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 
You see, Corinth was asking the questions of Paul through a myopic lens of what's best for me. I know none of us do that. But some church way back when, they did, I roll. No, 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 we do this, right? We, we seem, we seem to, to go through life, navigating life as if everything terminates on me and don't realize that there's something that God's doing through his kingdom in my neighborhood, in my workplace, in my city, in my schools. That's so much bigger. Here's my question for you. Do you view your life through the lens of the kingdom of God or do you view the kingdom of God through the lens of yourself? Which takes priority in the way that you see the world and approach the world? You see, for Paul, the reality of the empty grave and the imminent return of Jesus changes everything. Karl Barth puts it this way in his book, Evangelical Theology. He says, the apostles spoke, told, wrote, and preached about Jesus as men who were in this way directly illumined and instructed. They spoke as men, listen, who had behind them the empty tomb and before them the living Jesus. He continues on, he said, Jesus' history is real and real to them preeminently as the history of salvation and revelation. What he's saying is this, he's saying that Paul recognizes that the kingdom of God is about something way much bigger than, than these things that I numb out, numb, numb out to in life. That it's not just about what, what, what kind of satisfaction I think I can find around the corner. And this way of seeing the kingdom of God, and this way of seeing our world affects everything. It affects how we see our jobs. It, it changes how we view our experiences, our politics, our relationships, our way of being in the world. It affects all of it. And for Paul to say that the kingdom of God goes first, he says you don't make your decisions independent of the thing that matters most. The third thing I think he wants us to see here is that there's something much bigger happening in their souls than they would ever dare dream. There's something much deeper happening in their souls than they would ever dare dream. Look at verse 35. Don't lose sight of this. Paul says, I say this for your benefit. Like, Paul, stop. Paul's not a killjoy here. Paul's not here saying, hey, what's miserable for you? You should do that. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's not using them for mission. This is not a spiritual Ponzi scheme. He's not asking them to invest something deep and powerful so that he can run off to the Bahamas and chill out and drink margaritas. What he's trying to get them to recognize is that what God is warring for is their undivided heart because he's warring for their joy. God doesn't want them to be miserable. He wants them to be happy. But he also knows that that happiness, that true joy, that true contentment only comes in, in our connection to him and he wants our undivided attention for our good. 
Paul is doing something here, or is introducing us to something that God is doing in us that is much more profound than any of us can imagine. I admit, I don't know the first time I read this passage as a teenager, but it's, it's been, a, been a while. I've read this chapter a lot, and there are many times that it just, Paul just sounds extreme. It feels a little fanatical. Like, Paul, you're nice, but you need to chill out a little bit. I know some doctors that can get you some, some prescriptions, some, some garden medicinals. I don't think Paul's extreme. I think he's consistent. Paul's not extreme. I think he's consistent. You see, in one sense, it's you and I are the extremists here. Because we claim, we claim that Jesus is alive and on his throne. We claim to believe that he is going to remake this world and that this world has nothing to offer us but, but death and destruction and he offers life. We, we claim to believe that he's the only source to fulfillment. We claim to believe that he's the only hope for redemption and yet we live our lives as if that's a triviality. What Paul's calling us to be is to be consistent. Hey, if you believe that Jesus is on his throne, act like it. If you believe that the kingdom of God is doing things much more profound than what, you, what happens in your 40-hour work week, then actually live like it. That's, that's what he's calling us to. That's what he's inviting us to. So lastly, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I think it's important to, to say what I think at this point is obvious, but I want to say it anyway. Paul is not here saying that every single person should be single and stay single. He's not. It's not. There's no way to read the text that that's what he's saying. He also is not saying, hey, everybody should go get married. It's awesome. You should go do it. He's not saying that. Paul celebrates, unashamedly celebrates the beauty of marriage. We talked about both the beauty of marriage and singleness a, a, a few months ago. And you can go back in our podcast feed and find that sermon where, where, where Paul talks about this at the beginning of the chapter we're in right now. Paul celebrates marriage, but he also elevates in ways that, 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 that should shake us to our core, elevates the importance of singleness. You see, Paul wants us to see the particular value in singleness. He himself is single. Let's just not lose sight of that. Jesus was single. Let's not go, well, that's Jesus. Yeah, it was Jesus, and he was the most fulfilled human on the planet. The most satisfied human ever to walk on this planet as a single man. I, I tire, and part of it's because I've got family members that are so tired as singles to keep hearing people ask, hey, have you met somebody yet? Hey, can I set you up with somebody yet? Hey, are you on, are you on Bumble yet? Hey, are you on Tinder yet? Have you swept light, left or right? I don't even know which direction you're supposed to switch, switch, swap. <laughs> Nor can I talk.
as if somehow that we need to rescue singleness from a trap. What if we valued it the way that Paul values it? What if we recognize that there are particular challenges in marriage that need singles to come alongside them? What if we recognize that there's particular challenges in singleness that need families to come alongside? Because neither of them is the easy road. Neither of them is the easy road. But both of them are beautiful roads. And I'll say that in our cultural moment right now, in Western culture, singleness is seen as a value, but not for what it contributes to the kingdom. It's only seen as a value because I'm free. I can do whatever the heck I want. Because freedom is our absolute. But there is a particular unhelpful view of marriage as the greater good inside the church that needs to be killed. To all the married in the room, there will be a day in which you or your spouse will be single. I mean, I guess unless you both go out in the same tragedy. There will be, there will be single days ahead. To the singles in the room, I want you to hear me say you're valued and you're needed. And that Paul is trying to give us a singular view of our life in the context of the kingdom that means that our decisions are not made in a, a, as mere abstractions, but are made as our attempt to be faithful in our following of Jesus. What Paul is saying here is whatever you do, do it on purpose. And whatever you do, do it for the kingdom. Singled or married. Wherever you find yourself in life, the decisions you make, I'm going to ask you to make them on purpose and to make them in alignment with what God's doing in you, through you, for his kingdom. question we have to ask are we focused on the kingdom or are we simply focused on ourselves and lastly I want to say this I want us to learn as a church how to receive not grasp I want us to learn how to receive not grasp this comes back to what Chad said last week about calling that God has called each of us to different things to some of us, he's called us to marriage to some of us, he's called us to be parents to some of us, he's called us to singleness God's called some of us into different vocations. He's called, he's placed some of us in, in this neighborhood and that neighborhood. He's placed us in these, in these places. And my question is this, am I willing to receive what God gives me even if it's not the gift I wanted? Or am I grasping out of desperation for the things that I want to demand? How am I approaching every decision of my life? And let me just say, asking this question, this kingdom first question is scary because sometimes God says no to our petitions. But when he says no, listen, it's for our good. So to those in the room that have never been married, 
as you process question of what the future may or may not mean, I want you to ask this question, what is God calling me to? To those that are single in the room due to divorce. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I want you to ask the question, what is God doing to redeem this situation where I am? What is God doing? To, what, what is he calling me to in this moment? To those that are widowed in the room, can I just say I'm sorry? I'm so grateful for you. I've got a lot of spiritual moms in this room. And I don't know what God's got for you next. And I don't know if he's going to lead you into marriage again or not. But what I want to ask you is, would you give us the gift of your presence by giving us the gift even of your tears and of your love? And would you use this moment to serve to the church, would we care for well the singles in this church and value well the singles in this church? To all of us, I say this. Might we learn from Paul what it means to approach everything in life with a lens looking at the kingdom of God and receiving what he gives, not grasping at what we want? Let's pray. stand as we pray. I want you to I want you to I want you to hold out before the Lord anything that you feel like you're carrying right now or you feel like the Lord brought attention to in the last 30 minutes.